It's okay. It's on now. It's on now. It's okay. <laughs> Tonight, <laughs> we're continuing on <laughs> um, with the hindrances. So last week, having spoken about a desire and aversion. And so here's the first tip. This comes from the Buddha. When a noble disciple listens to the Dhamma with eager ears, attending to it as a matter of vital concern, directing their whole mind to it, on that occasion, the five hindrances are not present in them. So, <laughs> listening tonight with eager ears. The preparation of this talk was interesting to me. Um, you know, as I was reflecting on the hindrances, I was also, you know, over a couple of days, checking my email. And it seemed like every time I checked my email, I had news of uh, somebody, a couple of people, who were undergoing cancer treatment, getting worse. I also had news of another friend being diagnosed with cancer. I had news of a friend who died while making dinner. And somewhere, it just became a very poignant reflection. Because I think on one level... You know, we can think of the hindrances, that which obscures deepening concentration. You know, we may be relating to it uh, from the place of how it affects our meditation practice, which, yes, hopefully, is leading us to liberation. But these hindrances are also habits that we have in our life that keep us from seeing clearly accessing wisdom. And somewhere, you know, just having these moments of poignancy, of receiving news about friends, people that I know, facing immense physical difficulties, it, it just took my mind into how deeply rooted these hindrances are and how they are so tied up with the struggles we face in life and how if we don't come to understand them, if we can't fully face them, know them and understand, then our lives have a sense of being half-lived. We don't feel like we're embodying truth, wisdom. The Buddhists described the hindrances as the makers of blindness, causing lack of vision, lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, and tending to vexation, and leading away from nibbana. These hindrances are all important places for us to turn our attention, to really come to see, to know what binds the heart, what constricts us, what stops us. 
And that's often the feeling we get in practice when they arise. The sense that practice has stopped, halted, it's no longer flowing. There's a hindrance, something not being seen, understood. So tonight, talking about the remaining hindrances, um, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt, and speaking about them both from the place that they uh, occur as we practice meditation, but also pointing towards some of the deeper uh, levels of these hindrances and just their playing out in our lives. So sloth and torpor is where there's sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, laziness, apathy, a lack of energy or lack of resolve, and mental inertia. We find when this is present, some form of this, sloth and torpor, that we don't have the capacity to face difficulties I mean, this is easy to see in our practice at the end of a day when we're tiredness, when there's tiredness, and, you know, the willingness to sit with knee pain. You know, we may have been having all kinds of emotional pain in the day, physical pain. Maybe there was a great willingness. But when the, when the sleepiness starts to set in, it's like there's just, oh, I can't do it. There's no way. You know, it really... Um, feels like a great challenge. The words sloth and torpor, they remind me of an animal that lives in Australia. This is the koala. It's not actually a bear, but it looks like a little miniature bear. Very cute and cuddly looking. And the koala is known to be a very sleepy creature. And it it is because that it lives on eucalyptus leaves and something in those leaves creates the sleepiness. So it just tends to have a very uh, sleepy existence. And I had heard about this, but you know, I didn't know anything about it. And then one time I was doing a retreat out in the country and one day was watching a koala climb up this tree. And the koala would put up its arm to the next branch, pull itself up, and then put up another arm, pull itself up, put up another arm, pull itself up, and then it put up another arm and <laughs> fell asleep right there. <laughs> and it just, in seeing it in a practice place, it reminded me of sometimes how my own practice feels. You know, that in one moment, one could be very present, alert, and then in the next moment, pshew, nodding off, bobbing, weaving. And, you know, you just can't believe because, you know, a moment before there seemed like there was complete awareness. The simile that the Buddha used, uh, you know, the simile of looking into a pond and seeing one's reflection, well, when um, sleepiness is present or sloth and torpor, it's like looking into the pond and finding that it's overgrown with algae. Now, the mind can feel just <laughs> overgrown. Um, there's no clarity. And this sloth and torpor can have many different causes. And so, you know, how 
what its causes are will probably um, have some impact on how we might work with it. And so just having an interest in the sleepiness so that we can have more understanding and can know skillful means in working with it. So some of the causes at the beginning of a retreat. You know, how many times have we come on retreat and you know, the first few days we're just in this cloud of sleepiness. You know, and it comes from having a busy life, being on the go. And in our lives, we tend to override uh, sometimes the, the need for sleep. You know, we, we get so wound up, we just keep going. And then we come on retreat, and a whole unwinding process happens. That's really you know, a very basic, manageable level. Or, well, it doesn't always feel so manageable because it can be quite overwhelming. You know, the, the, there can be a lot of sleepiness. But you know, it's just it's pointing to a physical need for rest. And a physical need for rest can also come about when uh, we're sick. You know, that the that there may be times when that's what's called for, a need for rest for the body. This, you know, generally passes. Um, On the other physical side of it, another cause of sleepiness can be the tendency to overeat. And, you know, this is something that we really get much more attuned to during a retreat. In our lives, it's easy to miss the cues that... Um, sleepiness is happening as a result of overeating. But we get very clear feedback on retreat. You know, we have a big meal, overeat, come in and sit down, and just immediately fall asleep. Sometimes we notice different kinds of food cause us to fall asleep. I was doing a three-month retreat once and just began to notice how much cheese brought about sleepiness. And, you know, there was, it was at a time when I was using the noting practice. And then in one moment I looked and I saw cheese for lunch again. And I immediately noted sleepiness. You know, the connection was becoming so apparent. So retreat is somewhere we can really learn, you know, to recognize when we've had enough food, not to overeat, overindulge, and to even notice if there's foods that strongly bring about the sleepiness. The sleepiness can also come about at the beginning of a retreat when we just find that there isn't so much stimulation. You know, it's not, you know, it's a simple environment and there's not a lot of excitement in the environment. And so, you know, this can bring about a lot of sleepiness. And this is where, um, you know, a way of working with this on an ongoing basis in our practice is really when we let the mind have a neutral object as the anchor. Because that helps us to cultivate an awareness that is not dependent on excitement, not dependent on strong experiences, but just is a wakefulness that is naturally present. Another 
reason, cause of getting tired, sleepy, is when we have been overexerting ourselves in practice, trying too hard. It can be just the leaning in, you know, or you know, suppose you're working with the breath, awareness of the breath, and there comes this sense of trying to grasp on to the breath or any experience that the, the one is pushing oneself um, but with a mind that is tight, tense, rather than relaxed. We can't maintain this kind of energy and it starts to become draining. And so it is that if you find during the course of a day that at the end of a day you're quite exhausted. You know, just say in the evenings, you know, the, the, probably the last little piece before most of us go to bed, there's a dip in energy or we wouldn't be going to bed. So that can be quite normal. But in the evenings, if it, you know, it really is becoming a struggle to notice throughout the course of the whole day how you're applying your effort or energy and just to see if there's any straining in that. This tiredness, sleepiness, can also come about when there's resistance or fear about unpleasant states of mind or body. And this sleepiness almost has a drug-like quality to it. It's like an anesthetic. It numbs us out from feeling that which we don't want to feel. And this, you know, this is an p- aspect that, you know, as I was sitting over these last few days reflecting on the hindrances, hearing about my friends facing challenges, that somewhere this, this one really came to light how there is just this tendency to numb out where it feels too much. And sometimes that can be appropriate, that sometimes we may not have the capacity to open to our deepest suffering. And so that's almost like a safety valve. But sometimes it's really going to be helpful to look, investigate, inquire, you know, if we just keep finding that this sleepiness is so persistent, to notice in our experience, is there something we're afraid of? Is there something we're pushing away? Is there something that there's resistance to? And often, you know, when, when it's this type of experience... What's being resisted is so quietly in the background. It doesn't want to be seen. doesn't want to be touched. And so it really takes a willingness of heart to, with this form of just persistent sloth and torpor, to bring in the quality of investigation and to really look Is there something here that's not being seen? You 
in our lives, we will often develop habits of numbing out, dulling out, just as a way of coping in a world that is so filled with suffering. But that's not the way to live our lives. It's not the way we'll be able to embody truth. It's not where we'll find freedom. In looking deeper in this way, we will come in contact with emotions that we didn't want to feel. And it will take a courageousness of heart and steadfastness, a tenacity to stay present. There's also a type of sloth and torpor that we really need to pay attention to as we practice here. It's a complacency that masks itself as acceptance, where we just are keeping ourselves practicing within a sense of safety, never going near to that which triggers us, that which creates fear, where we're never looking very deeply. I mentioned last week about the necessity in practicing here to really watch that we don't set up a practice that's based on just the strengthening of pleasure. To notice, too, if there is any form of complacency that's masking itself as acceptance. So this acceptance can be known, in a sense, by, might have a sense of disinterest, that, that we're not totally connecting with experience. There's some kind of distance in there. It's not full acceptance. It's complacency. Something that's helpful in working with sleepiness is strengthening the jhanic factor of connecting with experience. So you're sitting and sleepiness is present to give the mind an object to be aware of. And then you work with just connecting. So maybe it's the breath. It's just making that effort to connect with the experience of the breath. Or maybe it's touching sensations the experience of touching. You don't worry about what comes next. You're just bringing the energy. It's like collecting all of the energy that is available in the mind and connecting with 
experience. Sleepiness has really plagued meditators for a very long time. And people become quite creative in working with it. Because one thing that you can't do with sleepiness is habitually work with it. Because that will just perpetuate sleep. That you know, it really needs to be an open, alive investigation. Um, but w- one technique that I heard of, of a woman who was, she kept falling asleep. And so she went and she sat in front of a tree. And then every time she nodded, the tree woke her up. <laughs> or my Zen master, Hogan-san, uh, he tells a story of how he was doing a sashin and kept falling asleep. And he kept wanting to sit up through the night, but he would just fall asleep. And this happened a few nights in a row. And so he decided that he would go up and sit on the roof of the monastery. And it had a peaked roof. And up on the top of the roof was just, you know, about a foot ridgepole. And so he thought he'd go and sit up there and that the fear of falling would be sure to keep him awake. And then he went on to say that in the morning when he woke up, (laughs) he was so surprised to find that he'd stretched out on the (laughs) ridgepole. So really not to be discouraged if we keep finding it. But explore it. Find out what's happening. Really look into. And you know, there's different ways of working with it. Um, Sometimes with the sleepiness, we notice that, we might notice that we've been trying to do too much. We've been trying to notice too much. And that's exhausting. You know, I I experienced one time where um, I was being with the breath and trying, really trying to know the the rising, the falling, all the little movements, and there's just no way the mind couldn't do it. And then it was just finding how the mind could meet experience, what it could connect with, and what it could do was to know the posture of sitting. It could connect with that. So finding where the mind can connect. It may be the knowing of dullness. I have found this to be truly amazing. That if there's a focus on the experience of dullness and one's identified with it, one will fall asleep. But if one is aware of the knowing of dullness the mind that knows it. This mind is as bright as the mind that knows anything else. It's quite remarkable. And you know, there's, there's really um, realized yogis whom are able to know the nature of the mind in the state of sleep. This is an extraordinary possibility. And so really exploring sleepiness, whether, you know, uh, however it's being experienced. And, you know, recognizing the mind that knows it. Noticing with the sleepiness how we're relating to it. Because so many times it gets exacerbated 
by being in an aversive relationship to it. Now, whether we're trying to push through it, but it's pushing with aversion, whether it's um, trying to keep it at bay using some energy of keeping it in the background, uh, where we're not accepting. And that accepting doesn't mean we're collapsing with. But there's just this, this relationship of not wanting it to be there. And aversion just takes a lot of energy. And so it will exacerbate the sleepiness. Just having an interest will energize the mind. So also don't be disheartened if you go to investigate sleepiness and it disappears. <laughs> that can happen. Because you know, it's, it's, when we have interest, it brings that vitality. It brings the energy. And you know, sometimes the sleepiness comes about when concentration is actually deepening, but it's not balanced by energy. And, you know, that's where we get into sinking mind, where maybe we get pulled into the lull, the rhythm of the breath, but we don't really connect with what's happening. There's a fogginess in the mind. Watching where it's coming from, complacency. And sometimes we'll need to actually do some reflections to help us get in touch with the truth of impermanence. Because, you know, in, with complacency, we're taking for granted our lives, our practice. We're taking for granted the future. And so we may need to do a reflection that helps us get in touch with the preciousness of this moment, this opportunity, the conditions that we have. Tomorrow morning at the morning reflection, I'll be offering some of these reflections there. There's other antidotes to sleepiness, such as splashing cold water on one's face, walking fast, briskly, uh, changing one's posture, letting in the light, you know, which can either be, it's interesting, it can either be you know, physical light, you know, such as opening the eyes, letting in the light of the room, the light of sunshine. Uh, it can also be inner light, the light of awareness. It's like really suffusing the experience of sleepiness with the light of awareness. The Buddha also talked about, you know, if it's extreme to pull on one's earlobes, <laughs> to rub one's limbs, you know, just some vitality into this body. You know, we see it in our lives, you know, when there's, you have a day where you've been sitting, you know, maybe doing a lot of desk work and the energy's really sluggish to get up and move around a bit, just lifts the energy. You know, so it can just be on this level of rubbing the body a bit, bringing some vitality to the body. And then there are the times where 
we gracefully surrender where sleep is needed. The Buddha talked about this. No, he didn't say never sleep. You know, when, when it's needed, we sleep. But he also put a little bit on the end of that, which is um, always a challenge, at least for me. He said, when you wake up, get up. <laughs> Sometimes there's that tendency. We wake up in the morning and we just, mm, just a few more moments. And then half an hour, an hour later, we get up. So seeing if we can take to heart, when you wake up, get up. A simile that the Buddha used about being freed from the grips of sloth and torpor was being released from a prison. We're released from the dullness that imprisons the mind. Some years ago, I was uh, practicing in Burma, and it was during the rains retreat. And during the rains retreat, a lot of lay people would come to the monastery and practice along with the monastics who would be there for a period of three months. And I noticed that, it, that I was sitting in a hall that was filled with lay women. And there was many either young women or older women. And it, it seems like women would come and practice for a number of months before they would have a family or after they had a family. But there was you know, a number of older women there, and they were often very inspiring. There was one particular woman who was over 80 years old, and she was so hunched over. You know, her, her back was just completely bent, and she would walk hunched over. But she was always practicing. She was always in the hall. And then, you know, uh, a few years later, I returned, and I was practicing in the hall, and at first I didn't see her. And then I noticed she was standing in the back of the hall. And she was doing this day after day. So one day I inquired, you know, what was happening with this woman, that she was always standing in the back of the hall. And I was told that her sleepiness had gotten so strong that she now always practiced in the standing posture. I was just so touched by that level of willingness you know, to face this, to not be run by sleepiness. I actually wanted to share with you, just in brief, I'm not going to go into it in full, uh, it comes from the Buddha. He talks about eight grounds for laziness. And there's just, I could just so easily relate to a lot of this. He, and it, uh, Okay, so he says, there's the ca- cause where one has some work to do, and the thought occurs. I will have to do this work, but when I have done this work, my body will be tired. Why don't I lie down? So before one does some work, one gets the idea that it will bring about tiredness, so rest now. I think I've done that. Then there's the case where one's done some work. The thought occurs, I have done some work. Now that I have done the work, my body is tired. Why don't I lie down? You know, we do a little bit and then think, oh, tired again. Better lie down. 
or one goes on is going to go on a journey and just at the thought of a journey you know if you've ever been going to uh, take a trip and you want to get rested in advance you're leaving the retreat you better rest up before you go uh, I think that that can happen to me <laughs> um, let's see what else we can find in here Oh, there's the case where one having gone for alms food in a village or town and does not get as much coarse or refined food as one needs to fill oneself up. And the thought occurs, I've gone for alms in the village or town and have not gotten as much coarse or refined food as I need to fill myself up. This body of mine is, in, is tired and unsuitable for work. You know, often around food, we have ideas. If we don't get what we need, uh, we'll be tired. Let's rest. Or, there's another one. One comes down with a slight illness. It occurs to oneself. I have come down with a slight illness. There's a need to lie down. So one lies down. Know that, that just at a whisper of the possibility we might get tired, we can often give in, stop being present, stop applying ourselves. So, that's sloth and torpor. The next of the hindrances being that of restlessness It's often talked about as restlessness and worry because they're quite similar in their nature. It's where the mind is agitated, anxious, worrisome. There's a jumpiness in the mind. The mind cannot connect and sustain itself with any experience. And there's very different ways it will manifest. You know, it can be at times where there's just a lot of thought in the mind we might be going back to the past, endlessly replaying old tapes, remembering times of conflict. We might be re-experiencing guilt over past actions, worried about what we've done in our lives. This is a time where we really discover the importance of sila, ethical conduct because we see the mind cannot concentrate if it's being haunted by past activities or we might find that we're fantasizing about the future obsessively planning the future you know it's sitting on retreat we might find that we keep making decisions about what we're going to do And these are things that we're not doing here. We won't have any opportunity to make the, to do anything about for two months. And yet we keep planning these decisions. We keep planning what we're going to do. It can be a form of restlessness. Or the restlessness might be on the level of the physical, where there's a huge amount of energy coursing through the body. And it's really unpleasant. It's hard to be with. 
You know, you're, you're sitting and, you know, a limb flings and, and the, there's just this sense that the body's going to explode. And you really just want to jump up, get, get up and run out of the room. Restlessness is a very unpleasant state, whether it's mental or physical. There's some levels of restlessness which, again, can be easier to deal with. The, uh, you know, it can happen in our practice that there's a lot of energy and it's not balanced with concentration. And so just by bringing in a bit more concentration the energy starts to balance. But restlessness can have deeper tendencies with it. That restlessness can be rooted in just a dis-ease we have with life, its changes, that there is no sense of security in conditioned experience. And fearful of these changes. And so, you know, it can just be this slight discomfort. The mind not able to land anywhere, not able to settle. And it's based in fear. Now this is where restlessness and aversion can be very closely linked. That that this disquietude with about the way existence is and it's very deeply rooted and it, it comes you know it's tied in with a sense of self it's it's tied in with conceit uh, and it doesn't completely disappear until full enlightenment and so it is something we want to look at to really come to let the mind feel this dis-ease, this unsettledness. Letting the mind touch what's there, if there's any underlying fear. Because if we don't, then we just live our, pl- our lives run by this restlessness. And so much we do in our lives. You know, the whole way we set up lives of doing, doing, doing. You know, it can be the restless mind. And it can happen in our practice. You know, we come to practice and we want to do, do, do to feed the restless mind. But let it be known. Let restlessness be known in its nature as it is. This is the way that we can reclaim the power that we've given to it. And we do so with the refuge of awareness. Restlessness as we experience it in our meditation practice will have very different ways of working with. And, uh, you know, we just have to see what 
really helps support the mind in being present. Sometimes because this restlessness comes about when there's an imbalance between energy and concentration, it can be helpful if the mind is just jumping around to pick one object to be aware of and to just keep bringing the attention back to it. No matter how many times it jumps away, we just come back. And that helps the concentration to strengthen. It could be just, you know, if there's a lot of uh, unpleasant physical sensations in the body, focusing on them. You know, that takes a strong willingness of heart. But if we just focus on them, this too brings, strengthens the concentration and the balance comes back into the mind. And we find that the restlessness dissipates. But sometimes the energy is so big, it feels huge. And, you know, it's, it's like trying to put a uh, big fat rope through the eye of a very fine needle. It just feels impossible. And then we really need to open the attention wide. We need to let this energy be held within a vast field of awareness and noticing all kinds of experiences, not just the unpleasant sensations. But just, it's like giving the mind a big paddock to be in, but keeping a touchstone of mindfulness, of awareness. You know, just this, this awareness of what the mind is knowing. And, you know, I found it very helpful, Ajahn Sumedho's way of, you know, noticing experiences that are, are challenging and just knowing that restlessness is like this. You know, knowing the nature of restlessness and just not taking it personally, not defining oneself by it. Sometimes when restlessness is strong, it can be helpful to make a vow not to move. That can just bring a container uh, to the experience. And then you just let it rip. (laughs) Be with it. Sometimes when restlessness is strong, and in the sense of giving Uh, the mind a big pasture, uh, to go out in nature and just walk. Just walk and find the touchstones. Maybe it's just the feet touching the earth and it's happening at a rapid pace. But just finding a simple way to connect within this energy. The simile of the pond for restlessness or worry is looking into the pond and finding that the water is in movement with waves, that it's very agitated. You know, we can't see clearly 
due to these waves. And when we're free of restlessness, it's a sense of being liberated from slavery, where one is no longer tossed about. So with restlessness, can we know it? Can we touch into this sense of dis-ease, agitation? An agitation that so often runs us in our lives, directs our lives, but is very different when it is known, seen, looking at what feeds restlessness. You know, sometimes we might think that to go and listen to a talk in the library, you know, to get another Dharma talk or get a book, we think that that might help to ease the restlessness. But then we pick up a book and we start flipping through it and we go from one spot to another to another. And it feeds the restlessness. It keeps the mind on the level of discursive thinking rather than dropping directly into experience. Maybe we find that if right before lunch we're practicing walking meditation in the kitchen, but all of the sights and sounds and smells activate restlessness. You know, just learning the ways. What, what strengthens it? What helps it to weaken? <coughs> Excuse me. So the last of the hindrances, let's see if my voice is going to make it. (coughs) Doubt. (laughs) Doubt about being able to speak loud enough. (laughs) Doubt. Where there's confusion in the mind, bewilderment, uncertainty, could be endless speculation We get caught in trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong. We can have doubt about our ability to practice, doubt about what kind of practice. Doubt can appear in very convincing forms. One form is self-doubt, which is very prevalent in our society. We live in a culture that can really breed competitiveness. You know, not so long ago, I was hearing about Kindergarten, is that what it's called in this country? Or daycare centers? Daycare centers, it actually was. The report was on daycare centers where parents were sending their children that would ensure them that they would get into a good university in life. Whoa, whatever happened to being a kid? <laughs> you know, it, it just sets up having to be perfect, having to do you know, good as far as society dictates. And then, you know, living with the fear of failure, the fear of not being good enough. And so, as a result, we find that in this culture, self-doubt is very prevalent. And we think that we don't have the capacity. We're not good enough. We can't do it. That, you know, it can creep into our practice 
you know, maybe we hear about anatta, the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience, and we think, it's impossible. I'll never be able to understand it. I'll never recognize it. Or we have a moment that seems like profound insight. We get the taste, scent of liberation. And then we think, who am I? You know, I don't deserve this. You know, that we just doubt. Or there can be the voice of doubt that knows a better way, a better technique, is suspicious about what's being taught. The voice that says, this isn't the right practice for me. These conditions aren't supportive enough. I need a better teacher. My other teacher is much more effective. Even sometimes the practice can be going very well. And then suddenly we think, oh, what if this isn't the right practice? I could do it forever. You know, and the practice was going just fine, but doubt somehow crept in, got a hold, and we think that we could do this practice forever and not get anywhere. And when doubt arises and is unrecognized, it really cuts the energy. It stops, has a sense of stopping the process. And... You know, I, I see it a lot in my life because uh, I've one of a deluded temperament, you know, as the three personality types go. And one of a deluded temperament often experiences a lot of doubt. And, you know, I experience it many times where I can be doing something just fine. Um, when I first started teaching, uh, chanting for me was a big challenge because I remembered back to my childhood of hearing somebody tell me my voice was no good. And so, you know, to sit in front of a room full of people and chant was a very daunting experience. And so sometimes, you know, just be chanting away, chanting's going just fine, and then doubt would come in. And as soon as doubt would hit, the voice would just quiver, shake, crumple. You know, the energy would just freeze. And, you know, I've seen this in so many activities, so many things where, you know, doubt comes in and one falters, one stops. Sometimes with doubt, it happens that it's really a way that, uh, you know, if we're thinking that this isn't the right practice, that uh, we maybe know something better. Uh, it can be a way that we invest our ego in our beliefs. And sometimes it can have a self-righteousness or a cynicism to it. And we try to protect ourselves from difficulty by having a bravado of cleverness. And then rather than face that which is difficult or challenging, we think we know something better and don't apply that and just get stopped. When we're stopped by doubt, we stop investigating. We stop looking. But really, you know, doubt is a part of the spiritual journey. It does arise. And if it's 
used skillfully. When we experience a moment of uncertainty, rather than moving into speculation about it, if we look more closely, if we connect with the experience, if we come close to what's happening, there's no room for doubt. The problem with doubt is that the voice of it can be so convincing that it can almost sound like certainty. And we need to learn to recognize when it's just the voice of doubt. You know, if you keep finding that from this place of uh, these teachings don't sound right, No, this practice isn't right. But you're just sitting there doing nothing and very agitated. You're probably getting stopped by doubt. Look more closely. Look, turn towards the direct experience rather than what the mind is telling us. And that's an aspect of doubt that's very workable because doubt is made up of thoughts, ideas, beliefs. Being able to recognize Thought as thought. You know, we see that there's so many thoughts that arise in our experience here. And many of them, we conceive that, that, you know, it's garbage arising in the mind. And so to be able to see thought as thought can be a way of robbing doubt of its power. On... uh, on one retreat, when I really you know, began to doubt that this practice was for me, I just gave myself the period of the retreat to apply myself. Because you know, our habits of delusion have been around a long time. And if we can't expect that they'll be you know, just uprooted very quickly... So we need to keep applying ourselves. You know, you need to fully apply oneself to the practice, give oneself over to the practice. And then, you know, after a period of time, a longer period of time, one can see if it's really not working. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's something that needs clarifying. Good to talk to a teacher. Maybe... uh, It's a practice that isn't suited to our tendencies. And so, you know, I found it helpful on retreat to really, you know, give something time, not to expect that uh, we would see results immediately. The jhanic factor that counters doubt is that of sustaining and immersing awareness in the object of meditation. Because then there's no room for doubt. Doubt can be balanced by developing faith. And this is from Kahil Gabran. He once said about doubt, 
Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. We can get so caught in the doubt that we stop looking to see what we can have faith in, what is trustworthy, what is reliable. We stop looking towards awareness, mindfulness. If you find yourself perplexed by doubt, to really turn the mind towards that which you do have faith in, that which inspires you, to reflect on the Dhamma. When doubt is strong, I at times have remembered the words of the Buddha, if it was not possible, I would not ask you to do it. Really learning to recognize the voice of doubt because it does halt, freeze the mind. The simile used to describe um, overcoming doubt is having arrived in a place of safety. So, these hindrances, they come in many forms, many variations. They come sometimes singly, sometimes as a troop. Uh, We can have what's called the multiple hindrance attack, where we're just inundated with them all. Uh, But, you know, as the Buddha pointed to, using them, as the very grounds for liberation. Coming to recognize them, accept, investigate, this leads to a greater understanding. You know, we might notice that there's particular hindrances that we often get repeatedly. Come to know what are the causes and conditions that give rise to these hindrances. Really exploring them, not just on retreat, but in our lives. Nyanaponikatera, he's a German-born Theravadan monk, he said, this widespread harmful influence of the five hindrances show the urgent necessity of breaking down their power by constant effort. One should not believe it sufficient to turn one's attention to the hindrances only at the moment when one sits down for meditation. Such last-minute effort in suppressing the hindrances will rarely be successful unless helped by previous endeavor during one's ordinary life. So remembering the hindrances are not limited to meditation practice, but really what we need to be looking to in our lives because they are what hinder or obscures the mind from clear seeing. I'd just like to close with a short story. It's called The Obstacle in Our Path. In ancient times, a king had 
a boulder placed on a roadway. Then he hid himself and watched to see if anyone would remove the huge rock. Some of the king's wealthiest merchants and courtiers came by and simply walked around it. Many loudly blamed the king for not keeping the roads clear, but none did anything about getting the big stone out of the way. Then a peasant came along, carrying a load of vegetables. On approaching the boulder, the peasant laid down his burden and tried to move the stone to the side of the road. After much pushing and straining, he finally succeeded, and as the peasant picked up his load of vegetables, he noticed a purse lying in the road where the boulder had been. The purse contained many gold coins and a note from the king indicating that the gold was for the person who removed the boulder from the roadway. The peasant learned what many others never understand. Every obstacle presents an opportunity to improve one's conditions. So looking to what we may have perceived as obstacles. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the nature of the hindrances and be free from suffering. Closing with the reflections on the sharing of blessings, 